please at this time turn in your copy of God's Word to Paul's epistle to the Romans, chapter 5 and verses 12 through 21. Paul's epistle to the Romans, the fifth chapter, and we'll be reading the second half of that chapter, verses 12 through 21. Romans 5, beginning in verse 12, let's hear now God's holy word. Therefore, Just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation. But the free gift, which came from many offenses, resulted in justification. For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. May the Lord bless this reading of His Word to us this morning. Amen. Well, seeking the Lord's help and blessing this morning. Let's turn back to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, focusing our attention once again upon verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. 
Now we've said that chapter 5 opens a window into Christian hope. That our confidence in what God has done through Christ and what He has given to us in Christ is now used to pivot so that we can look forward to what God has promised to do, what He shall do, and what we shall possess in and through the Lord Jesus Christ, even the hope of deliverance from every trial and the hope of the glory which is yet to come. And we've said that Paul has embedded into these discussions, into this material in the fifth chapter of his epistle, he's embedded responses to various objections. Various objections as to why we might be tempted to think that our hope will be disappointed. Whether it be our own sinfulness, well, he says, listen, when God first chose you, when God sent His Son to die for you, He demonstrated that His love is not dependent upon your performance because while you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. And so, we have Paul rebutting and refuting that type of objection. And we said that as we come to the second half of the chapter, verse 12 through the end, that Paul is really dealing with one of hope's greatest objections. One of hope's greatest objections. And that is the tangible, experiential reality of sin and misery and death all around us in this world. And we see it and we experience it. We taste the bitterness of it and we think, well then, is this hope that I have really realistic? Is it really grounded? What is the foundation of it? If everything in my experience is filled with sin and misery and death, how can I sustain this hope of the glory to come? How can I sustain an optimistic view of my Christian life that sin shall not have dominion over me and that I will be delivered through tribulation such that I can even be so optimistic that I'm boasting in the tribulation? How is it that I can be sustained in that type of environment? And Paul, as we saw last time, demonstrates that in some sense, hope's greatest objection becomes hope's greatest demonstration. Now in saying that, we're not thinking that the death of Christ is, is further down on the list as a less significant demonstration of God's love. But in the sense of argumentation, in the sense of polemics, in the sense of when, when, you're, when you're in a dispute with these doubts and these temptations, I would submit to you that you're expecting to gain hope from the death of Christ, and that's sort of a given. But when you can leverage the greatest objection to your hope against that objection, and you can pull a reversal, and you can say, well, the the greatest argument against my hope actually is an argument in favor of it, I think at a certain level that becomes the most viable argument, the most powerful argument the most effective argument at times. Again, if, if a Mormon comes to your door, right? You can engage them on the doctrine of the Trinity and you can engage them on various obvious false teachings that they're, that they're seeking to promote. Or you can take a different approach and come through the back door. And, and again, this is what I'm saying. For the sake of argumentation, this is the greatest demonstration of our hope that the greatest objection to it actually proves it. 
and demonstrates it. Because the fact of the matter is that God said in the day that you eat of that forbidden tree, in the day that you sin, you will experience spiritual depravity and death, misery and physical death, and so the world vindicates the fact that God does what He says. And if God has done what He said He would do in relation to Adam's sin, then we can be certain that He will do what He has said He would do in relation to the perfect obedience and sacrifice of Christ on behalf of all who trust Him. So the argument is flawless and it's relevant. It's not as though Paul's just running off on a tangent because he's interested in certain theological minutiae. Paul is harnessing the reality of sin, misery, and death around us to promote our experiential hope as Christians. And in doing so, he introduces to us the first aspect of his argument, which is grounded in the one man, Adam. Therefore, just as through one man, that's Adam, we know from the early chapters of Genesis, he is a real historical figure, the first man, as he's called in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, just as through that one man, Adam, sin entered the world, and death entered the world through sin, and thus death, having entered the world through sin, spread to all men because all sinned. This is the first aspect of his argument, and we're going to be delving into it to a great extent, Lord willing, in the coming weeks as we consider this section. But I want to point out on the front end, just as a reminder before we dive into some of these things, that Paul is seeking to give us this theological material, this doctrinal precision, even to the point where if you look from verse 13 to verse 17, there's a parenthetical section where he goes in a, a real deep dive into the doctrine of human depravity, the imputation of Adam's sin, uh, the relationship between Adam and Christ. Uh, he, he dives in with the, the doctrine of original sin. All of these aspects of, of Paul's doctrinal precision, he's presenting these things for us, not merely for academic or intellectual reasons, but for further practical consolation and comfort and motivation in the Christian life. That's why he's doing it. So we need to keep that in mind. Now, what do we make of this one man, Adam? Well, let's begin at the beginning. God created Adam in Genesis chapter 2. Of course, there's a reference in general to God creating Adam and Eve in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. But the, the more detailed presentation comes in chapter 2, where the focus is on that sixth day in which God made man and woman, and how He did it, and the order in which He did it. And of course, it's really a pound to the ounce in terms of the significance of every verse in that chapter, every clause, every description, everything there is so vital as by way of instructing us in what man is and how man and woman are to relate and all of these things, all the creation ordinances that God has established, these are vital chapters. In fact, the first three chapters of Genesis are so vital that the devil makes a special effort to attack their veracity and their historicity. 
But according to chapter 2, God created Adam in a special, intimate manner from the dust. So Genesis 2, verse 7, you can see that here we are on presumably the sixth day of creation, according to the timeline that's given in more general terms in chapter 1. We're told, verse 4, this is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created. So we need to take that into account. This is history. Verse 7, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Now God had made various beasts of the field, birds of the air, fish of the sea. He'd spoke light into the darkness. The Lord had done many things, created many things in a variety of ways during this creation week. But here's the climax Uh, The Lord God formed man, built the man. Uh, The idea is with with his own bare hands, as as though he had a body, although he does not have a body. We'll see that in our Sabbath school lesson. But it's as if God forms Adam intimately with his bare hands out of the dust of the ground, forms and shapes his body, and breathes the breath of life into his nostrils. And man becomes a living soul. Man intimately crafted by God. The idea of breathing into his nostrils the breath of life is if it's as if someone was administering CPR. That's the imagery. God comes close to him. He's formed his body and he, as, as it were, with a kiss, breathes life into Adam. This is the intimacy of the relationship between our transcendent, infinitely transcendent God and His creature, Adam, His image bearer, who is infinitely inferior, and yet God creates him in this special, intimate manner from the dust, so from humble beginnings, but made significant, made significant because of His relationship to His Creator. We also recognize in this chapter that God exalted Adam above all other earthly Creatures. In fact, really it's emphasized in, in the prior chapter. Chapter 1, verse 26. God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. So mankind is going to reflect something of God's character in a way that's far superior to the rest of creation. Yes, the heavens declare the glory of God. The earth shows forth His, or the firmament shows forth His handiwork. Throughout history, the creation of God has shown forth God's invisible attributes, His power, His Godhead, according to Romans 1. All these things are declared in the creation. But for mankind, it's going to be something unique. God's character is going to be uniquely reflected. God's image, God's likeness. And they're to be exalted Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the creeping things on the earth. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. And He blessed them, commanded them to be fruitful and multiply, and to subdue the earth and to exercise that exalted dominion over this world. God made man in His own image with that dominion. Now, what is God's image? According to Colossians 3.10, 
and Ephesians 4.24. We're not going to spend time looking those up, but if you go to Colossians 3.10 and Ephesians 4.24 and you put them together, it's clear that the image of God in man, which Adam had and which believers are now experiencing a renewal of through sanctification, that that image of God is, as our catechism says, knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. Knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. And this corresponds to the faculties of man. His mind possesses knowledge. He has a conscience that's aware of righteousness, right and wrong. And he is a religious being designed for a relationship with his Creator. And so he has some sense of holiness. Now through sin, these things have been defaced. These things have been marred. Not totally eradicated in terms of those faculties and the light of nature in them, but greatly corrupted such that his knowledge is corrupted by sin, his understanding of right and wrong, his righteousness is corrupted, and his holiness has become uh, ungodliness in so many respects. But God made man in his own image in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. Romans 2.15 says that even the unconverted pagan who's never read a Bible has the work of the law written on his heart. And we infer from that that if the sons of Adam in their fallen condition have the law inscribed on their heart in principle, then in fact Adam had it inscribed in perfection before the fall without any corruption at all. So he had a law-inscribed heart. That righteousness and holiness that God gave him gave him an inclination to do what is right and an ability to not sin. He had a will. He made choices. But his inclination inwardly was toward righteousness and holiness according to the knowledge that he had. And he had the ability to not sin. And God made this knowledgeable, righteous, and holy man, as it were, the king of creation. He had dominion, and he and his wife bore the image of God. Also, God provided generously for all of Adam's needs. God made a garden. God gave Adam a home. He gave Adam food. We're told that God planted trees throughout the garden, the taste of the fruit of which was pleasant and desirable. So God gave him a home. He provided food for him. He gave him work, which is a blessing and a privilege. He could tend the garden, not the backbreaking labor of the fallen world in which we live, but meaningful, energizing work, which God gave him. Also, he gave him a wife. Notice he gave him work before he gave him a wife. That's important. That's important as a bit of practical instruction. Uh, for our young men and for our young women. As you seek to move toward marriage, a man should have something of work, some ability to provide ordinarily before he finds a wife. Well, God gave him work. He gave him a suitable helper in Eve to help him. And most of all, God gave him spiritual communion with himself. When Adam and Eve sinned, immediately God was in the garden as if it were a regular affair for them to be walking and communing together. We know that God instituted the Sabbath as a day of rest and spiritual communion as well. And so you can see God provided for every aspect 
of Adam's needs, both physical and spiritual. He had perfect health and strength. He had a perfect home. He had tasty food. He had a great job. He had a wonderful wife. And he had perfect, intimate fellowship with his Creator. So God provided generously for him. But God also tested Adam. He tested Adam's loyalty and submission. Adam had a will. Would Adam submit his will? Not my will, but your will be done. Now you say, well, how is God going to test Adam's will if Adam's will is already inclined to what God loves? If Adam's will is already inclined and motivated to pursue what is righteous, how would it be a test at all? I mean, if um, somebody put your favorite food in front of you and then set something next to it that was not your favorite food, some type of food that you found undesirable, would it, what kind of a test would it even be? Uh, you would incline to the thing that you enjoyed. And Adam enjoyed righteousness and holiness. So how is God going to test someone who is already inclined to be loyal and submissive to God? In fact, in a sense, it's, it's not even submission, in a sense, because Adam intrinsically desires righteousness and holiness. And you, now you see the need for the test. Is Adam seeking to pursue holiness and righteousness because it agrees with his nature, which is inclined to pursue it and to delight in it? Or is Adam ultimately pursuing righteousness and holiness out of love for God and out of a desire for the glory of God? And the way in which God is able to test Adam, his loyalty, his submission, his willingness to say, not my will, but your will be done, is by testing him with something that is not inherently moral. Testing him with something that is not inherently righteous or unrighteous. Holy or unholy. In fact, something you could say even that is righteous and holy, but God is testing him in a particular way with respect to that object. And so God creates the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We don't have time to debate the, the, and talk about the tree of life. Of course, that signified the eternal life that was set before him. But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is a tree of testing. There's nothing poisonous in the fruit. There's nothing special about the tree other than the fact that God says don't eat from it and in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. In other words, here's something that Adam might in some sense inherently be attracted to. God made the tree. It probably has tasty fruit. It reflects the glory of God according to general revelation. It's something that ordinarily he would look at it. He would seek to appreciate it. He might take the fruit and eat it. It's something that does not cause the alarm bells in his law-inscribed conscience to, to be going off. You follow it? But God says, because I said so, don't eat it. Don't eat from it. Uh, and Adam relayed that commandment to Eve. It seems that he may have added the restriction, don't touch it. And more could be said about that. But uh, God says, don't eat from that tree. Don't eat from it. In other words, restrict and restrain your desires and your choices exclusively because I am God and you are not. Will Adam consider equality with God something to be grasped or will he submit his will and say, not my will, but your will 
be done. God, it's a beautiful tree and you made it, so I'm sure the fruit is tasty, but I'm not going to do it because you said not to do it. Will he desire equality with God like the devil who said, I will be like the Most High, and he fell into sin? Or will he be as the second Adam was, not my will, but your will be done? Uh, The fact of the matter is, God is testing Adam. And when Satan comes into the garden, he tempts Eve first, who then tempts Adam. But the point is, the temptation is, you eat of this and you will be like God. So you see, even Satan understands the nature of this temptation. And, of course, we know sadly that Adam and Eve do consider equality with God something to be grasped. They eat of the forbidden fruit, but God is testing them. Will they be content with creaturehood or will they desire equality with God? God has given them dominion over the entire earth. Will they be satisfied with that or will they seek to usurp His throne and His authority doing whatever's right in their own eyes rather than obeying Jehovah their God? God is testing Adam. And He tests him with this special command. Again, the Ten Commandments in principle, according to natural law, were written on the heart of Adam. He would have had no natural aversion to this tree, perhaps even a natural desire for it because it's made by God and it glorifies God. But God says no. And there's an intuitive threat There's an intuitive threat that God verbalizes in His dealings with Adam. The day you eat of it, you will surely die. And I say it's intuitive because recognize in the natural relation between the Creator and the creature, sin brings death. Sin brings death. Even if God had not decided to test Adam in this unique way, sin would have brought death. We're not told that God established a test of this sort for the angels, perhaps something similar, but not not specifically in the same way that He tested mankind with Adam and Eve. And yet, when the angels sinned, they died spiritually. They were separated from God and chained up in darkness and under the wrath of God. So, sin alienates from God. Sin alienates us from the life of God and brings death. So this threat is intuitive. The test didn't add the threat of death for sin. It just reiterated and repeated something that was already obvious in Adam's conscience. In fact, it's obvious in your conscience, even if you're not a Christian. According to Romans chapter 1, verse 32, after Paul lists a number of sins that are common throughout fallen humanity and even make their way into the church, So we're familiar with all these types of sins. He says, "...who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them." So these are unchurched pagans in Romans 1, but they know the righteous judgment of God in their conscience by nature, not something that's merely passed down from word of mouth, but they know it in their conscience. And I submit to you, therefore, Adam would have known it in his conscience regardless of whether God instituted this test. This threat was already intuitive. The natural consequences of sin and in some sense unimpacted by the test itself. 
sin would have brought death either way. So God isn't, in putting this test before Adam, He's not adding a threat that wasn't already there. But He is giving Adam a gracious opportunity, an undeserved opportunity to gain confirmation in his relationship with God. And that's what the tree of life signifies. Go to the book of Revelation and use your concordance or your online search tool and look at the references to the tree of life in the book of Revelation. It always refers to eternal life. It always refers to the life that Christ has purchased for His people that is unlosable, that is completely sure and steadfast, reserved in heaven, confirmed, something you cannot lose. That's what the tree of life signifies, and therefore that's what it signified in the early chapters of Genesis. Whether Adam and Eve were eating from it is a debate. Uh, if I can think of a really good practical application as a, as a reason for talking about that, I, I'll bring it up. But at this point, I don't see the practical relevance, so we'll leave it there, whether they ate from it. But it signified, it signified confirmation in eternal life, in eternal communion and fellowship with God. Adam and Eve had the opportunity or the possibility of sinning. They could choose to sin and incur death. And to live in that natural relationship with their Creator without confirmation, as blessed as it was in some sense, would eventually become well nigh unto a curse. Because they wouldn't have full assurance and confirmation that they will always be with the Lord and that they won't get up the next morning in sin and be cast out of His presence. We know this as believers. This is what we desire. Total assurance. Full assurance of eternal life. Confirmation in the perseverance of the saints. And Adam would have desired that as well. And so God gives him a gracious opportunity. If you pass this temporary test then you'll be confirmed and you'll experience what this tree of life signifies, eternal, unlosable righteousness and communion with me. Think of the angels that didn't fall with Satan. Right? You can think of Satan and the demons falling, but around that same time, clearly the rest of the angels didn't fall. They're called elect angels. They're called good angels, holy angels. Is it still possible for those angels to fall? It's clear that it's not from Scripture. There's no indication that Gabriel could become a demon at some point, right? They're the elect angels. They're, they're confirmed in their position. At one point, some of them fell, but when those that didn't fall remained faithful to God, He confirmed them. And that's what Adam could have had if he had passed this test pass the temporary test, and be confirmed in righteousness just like those holy angels. He also would have been elevated to a greater experience of God. This is signified by the Sabbath that God instituted. We know that the Sabbath points to an eternal Sabbath. The weekly Sabbath is not an end in itself. When God gave Adam the Sabbath, even before the fall, it was meant to signify, similar to the tree of life signifying confirmation, this Sabbath day signified elevation to uh, a greater experience of communion with God. A heavenly Sabbath, how that would have worked, we're not going to get into. Again, it's not practical for now, but, but an elevation to heavenly Sabbath communion 
with God. But it was only possible through this test, through this undeserved gracious opportunity to be confirmed and elevated in the favor of God by obeying His commandment. This is called in our doctrinal standards the covenant of works, but for our purposes, it's a test of Adam's loyalty and submission. Now, God appointed Adam not merely in himself. God could have just given Adam this test, and if Adam sins, he dies. If Adam obeys, he's confirmed and elevated in righteousness and eternal life. But God appointed Adam to represent all mankind who were in him, all of his natural posterity. Of course, the Lord Jesus Christ is virgin-born, so he would not be included in Adam, but everybody else, every last one of us, were placed in Adam as our representative. He represented all mankind descending from him by ordinary generation, as the Catechism says, in this test. Now, Adam was qualified in, in a unique way to be our covenantal representative and head. Why? Because he's our natural father. He's the father of the human race. And therefore, it makes sense that, that he would be the one to represent all of us. Also, God, as I said, appointed him to be the federal covenantal head. God put him in the situation. He was qualified as the natural father of the race, but God further appointed him in that capacity. And so as the federal representative or head of the human race, his performance, or children, if you think about Adam, think of his test grade. In school, you take a test, and your test score applies to your report card. But imagine if the teacher said, I'm going to give you a test, and your test result is going to apply to all the students' report cards. Okay, that's the idea here with Adam. He was tested on behalf of all of the rest of us. And his test score, either pass or fail, is then reckoned or imputed or accounted to everybody else's report card. How's he going to do in this test? How's he going to perform? Will he pass or will he fail? And what score, what, what grade, pass or fail, will be imputed to all of the rest of us? And you can see this in Romans chapter 5 that God appointed him to be this representative because verse 12, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin and thus death spread to all men, so Adam's sin had repercussions for the rest of the world. But notice it adds at the end of verse 12, because all sinned. Because all sinned. Now sin entered the world at the moment of the fall right? Sin entered the world at the moment of the fall. And if you, if you look at this verse very carefully, it's clear that this reference to all sinning has to be in reference to something that happened before the fall. Because we're told sin entered the world and death through sin and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. Well, if this chain of events began with Adam sinning, and if this chain of events is grounded in all sinning, okay, then we all must have sinned before the chain of events began. 
It wouldn't make any sense to say that through one man sin entered the world and death through sin and thus death spread to all men and then to introduce the sins of the rest of us. If Adam's sin accounts for sin, death, and its universality, then in what sense does our sin factor in? Your sins and mine come after all of this. Our sins come after sin entered the world. Our sins come after death entered through sin. And our sins come after that decisive point when death spread to all men. Our sins can't be the reason that sin and death entered the world. Because our sins come on the back end. So if we're being told that all sinned in a way that contributed to the entrance of sin into the world, then it must have been our participation in a sin that happened before sin and death entered the world. And therefore, as most reformed, as all Reformed theologians have pointed out, most Christian theologians throughout history, this reference to all sinning is a reference to our participation in Adam's sin. In other words, He represented us, we sinned and fell in Him and with Him. And notice, Paul makes it very clear that this is the case, that it's not our personal sins that contribute to our personal physical death, but sin and death are universal because Adam sinned and we sinned in him and with him. Look at verse 14. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses. You could say, well, everyone from Adam to Moses committed personal sins. They all sinned against God. They all made sinful choices just like Adam and Eve, and therefore that's why they died. Every man for himself. Paul says, not so fast. Even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam. So what he's saying is, it's not that Adam sinned and brought death upon himself, and we sin in a way that's sort of like Adam's sin. We all come into the world just like Adam. We have choices to make. And because we commit these sinful actions, we die. And if somehow we didn't commit sinful actions, we wouldn't die. Every man for himself. Paul says that's rubbish. That's rubbish because there were infants that died between Adam and Moses. Infants that never made a conscious sinful decision. Though they were infected with the pollution of sin, Though they had original sin, in other words, original sin is that sin that corrupts our original nature, our our native depravity. They had original sin, but they didn't make sinful choices in the way that they could be consciously tempted and intelligently make a sinful decision like Adam and Eve did. Death affects little babies that never get out of the womb. Little, ba- little infants that, that never learn to walk. One-year-olds, two-year-olds, three-year-olds. Paul is saying people that never had anything analogous to what Adam did still die. The fact that there's death that applies universally even to people who don't make conscious sinful decisions demonstrates that when he says all sinned, it can't be all committed actual sins similar to Adam. It has to be that we all sinned in Adam's sin. He represented us in the same way as Adam is a type of Christ and Christ performed the work of redemption on behalf of His people. Not anything that you did to contribute 
okay? Jesus did it in your behalf as your substitute. And His righteousness and obedience and all that He's purchased comes to you even though He did it. In the same way, we all sinned in Adam in the sense that Adam represented us, his sin is accounted to us, and what he incurred by way of punishment and consequences falls to us. We're guilty in Adam in, in that same way as Paul illustrates in the same way that a believer is made righteous in Christ. So as the federal head, Adam represented us and we sinned and fell in him. You can look at verses 18 through 21. You see the same thing. We'll look at it in a future sermon. But it's one man's offense, one man's condemnation that's then imputed to everybody else who sinned in him and is equally condemned in him. Now, as a natural father, understand this. As a natural father, Adam's resulting condition would then be imparted to his natural posterity. Adam's guilt, Adam's grade on the test, is put on our report card. Okay, So his failure becomes our failure in a legal sense. But in terms of our natural condition, we descend from Adam. And so when Adam experiences spiritual death and depravity upon sinning, and he's corrupted by sin, then he begets a son in his own image. Genesis 5. And so he passes down by natural generation that sinful condition, that original depravity that clings to our nature. We're conceived and born in sin. Psalm 51, verse 5. As in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. All of us come into the world by nature dead in trespasses and sins. Ephesians chapter 2. So that mechanism for passing along sinful depravity, uh, slavery to sin, the influence of sin, the dominion of sin, however you want to look at that, sinfulness, the mechanism for that is Adam's natural fatherhood by way of, na- uh, by way of natural generation. Now, uh, my friends, some people would say this is unfair. Some people would object. Why? was my destiny determined or impacted by the first man of the human race. That's not fair. That's not democratic. I want to represent myself. Why wasn't I tested? I would have got a better grade on the math test, right? Why why was Adam's test put on my report card? This is not fair. And the unconverted rail against this, and sadly some misguided believers can find a stumbling block here as well. But let's just respond to that briefly. My friends, God is the standard of justice. There is no unrighteousness in Him. In His light, we see light. He's the standard by which we can identify what is good and holy and just and what isn't. And so if God is the standard of justice, if He's light without darkness, if He is righteousness itself, and the judge of all the earth, then by definition, the only way to accuse God of injustice is to abandon the the precondition for all justice. It's to abandon the foundational presupposition upon which we can even claim that there is such a thing as justice. 
Now, I'm starting with that because I know that's not going to satisfy everybody, but that's, that ultimately should be all we need. But secondly, federal representation is everywhere in our society. How many of you were present at the First Continental Congress or at the Constitutional Convention? You're subject to the United States Constitution as the law of the land or to the Michigan State Constitution as the law of this state. And to my knowledge, none of you ever voted on that, okay? But other people did on your behalf. And you are subject to the decisions of your forefathers. If that's not a helpful analogy uh, for all of you soccer fans, when you watch the World Cup very often, the outcome is decided by a penalty shootout. And there are players that represent their country and their country rises or falls based upon their goalkeeper, based upon the men that are appointed to, to take that shootout. And if it hits the post and they lose, the whole nation loses and everybody's weeping in the stands. And if they score the goal, then they all win, right? If, if, if the guy taking the last penalty upon which the entire match, perhaps even the entire World Cup hinges, misses, it's not just that that player loses, the whole team loses, okay? And if the, if the goalkeeper blocks that shot, it's not just the goalkeeper that wins the World Cup, it's the whole team and the whole nation. So uh, there are elements of representation all around us, and we could sit around and come up probably with dozens of them. Thirdly, isn't it a bit self-serving? Isn't it a bit self-serving for us to object that Adam represented us in this test? Think about, think about how you would respond if Adam had succeeded in this test. I mean, what if Adam had actually fulfilled and obeyed God's commandment here? What if Adam had obeyed and you were now in heaven? Would you be complaining? Would the unconverted be complaining if their life was absolute perfection for all eternity on account of Adam's obedience? Right? The team that complains about penalty shootouts being arbitrary is the team that loses the penalty shootout. I mean, that's just the way it works. And that's how it is for us. We're sinful, self-serving individuals. If, if somehow we get a letter in the mail that says, you know, Apple messed up in, in uh, the construction of our iPhone battery and now they're going to give us $100, we cash the check, we don't hesitate, you know. But if something goes against us, that we don't have any control of, we're ready to condemn it as unfair. The fact of the matter is we're self-serving and we need to recognize that. If your objection is, if you're honest, largely dependent upon the fact that Adam failed, it's not a valid objection. Fourthly, what's the alternative? Somebody please explain to me, what's the alternative scenario to Adam representing all mankind in this test? Let's think about it. If Adam was not the federal head and representative of all mankind, he still would have been the natural father. Sin still would have brought death. And he still had the possibility of sinning throughout his life, regardless of this test. If God had never made a tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it's still possible that he could have sinned. 
And if he had sinned, he either would have been sent to hell immediately, in which case none of us would exist because we descend from him, or he would have experienced the gradual effects of uh, sinful depravity, spiritual death. He would have been unregenerate. He would have been depraved and wicked as a result. And he would have then passed along that sinful nature unto us anyway. So exactly what what is the alternative here? Let's say God made Adam the representative of only himself in this test. Let's think of that scenario. Let's say Adam obeys. Adam obeys the test just for himself, and then everybody gets tested on their own. Okay? Well, Adam would then be exalted and elevated and and would go on and enjoy eternal life himself, and his posterity would come into the world without sin, but they would be vulnerable to sinning from the moment of their birth. They would be vulnerable to sinning, let's even say from two years old, three years old, five years old. You can come up with the the age of accountability. The point is, they would be subject to Satan's temptation and the possibility of sinning from a, a very early age. How many of them would succeed on their own behalf? Age five, age seven, age nine, age ten. How many of them would succeed? Most likely, Satan, if he could tempt Eve as an adult to to eat of the forbidden fruit or to sin against God, who's to say that he couldn't tempt a vast majority of Adam's descendants into sin? While Adam's confirmed because of his obedience, 80 to 90% of his descendants by natural generation would end up in hell anyway. So exactly what is the, the, the alternative here? This is the most gracious scenario. And I think the fact is that God gives Adam a test that if anything, if you're going to find fault with this test, and no doubt the devil did on this ground, if you're going to find fault with it, not saying we should, but if you are, you'd probably find fault with the fact that it's too easy. It's too easy. You're going to give Adam eternal life simply for not eating of one tree? You've given him a holy inclination to what is good. You've given him perfect circumstances. You've given him a heart on which the law of God is inscribed. You commune and fellowship with him every day. The entire world screams the glory and beauty of God. And the command that you give him is simply to not do something. Right? Just just don't... I don't want to use this analogy... Uh, on this day, but I'm going to have to. Just take a knee, right? Imagine a football team, first and goal at the eight-yard line, and they're up by five points, and there's 30 seconds left. The other team doesn't have any timeouts. Just take a knee. Just down the ball, right? Adam, all you have to do is don't eat from that one tree. Take a camping trip on the other side of the garden. Just go eat from another tree. Find something else to do. Just take a knee. Down the ball. Run out the clock. It's a temporary test You're inclined to all righteousness and holiness. You have dominion over the entire earth. Just take a knee. Just take a knee. Bow the knee. But the point is, if anything, it was too easy. I'm not saying it was too easy, but I'm saying if anything could be critiqued. I'm sure the devil thought it was too easy. Maybe that's why he got involved. Maybe that's why he felt the need to get involved. This is too easy. 
My friends, God served up eternal life on a platter to mankind, and we tossed it. We tossed it. We rejected it. How do we apply this? How do we apply this? Well, first, cease from man. Cease from man whose breath is in his nostrils. If, if the perfect man who probably had a better chance of succeeding in this test than all of us combined, okay, if he failed, who can possibly succeed in gaining the favor of God based upon our own performance? But not just that, who among us in our own strength can conceivably succeed at anything? Who among us in our own strength should have any self-confidence whatsoever? Look at the human race. Look at our first father. Look at who we are in our weakness and foolishness. God serves it up on a platter and we're so foolish that we cast it away. Cease from man. Don't put your trust in yourself. Don't lean on your own understanding. Don't trust in princes. Don't trust in pastors. Don't trust in presbyteries. Don't trust in this ultimate sense in anyone or anything other than the one man, Jesus Christ. The one man, Jesus Christ, sent by our one God and Father of all. Cease from man repudiate and renounce all self-confidence. And my friend, if your hope of eternal life is based on you, even if it's 1% you, again, we could argue it was 1% Adam. Everything was handed to him. All you have to do is take a knee. And he threw an interception that was run back for a touchdown. That's us. That's us in every aspect of our lives as sinners apart from total reliance upon the grace of God. Secondly, flee to Christ. It is finished. The one man, Jesus Christ, has done it all. He has come down from heaven. You don't have to bring Him down. He has come up from the grave. You don't have to raise Him up. He's done everything necessary to restore your fellowship and communion with God. He's obeyed the law perfectly. He's suffered and died for the penalty of sinners. It is finished. He has done it. That is the righteousness of faith in Christ through His finished work. Flee from Adam to Christ. Who do you want representing you on Judgment Day? Adam or Christ? And the fact of the matter is, Adam was saved later, so Adam's going to be with Christ too. You're going to be left all alone. If you try to, be, if you try to stand in Adam and in yourself, you're going to be left all alone. Well, not all alone you'll be in the place prepared for the devil and his angels. Flee to Christ. And finally, cultivate humility. Your ancestor was cursed. Your ancestor ruined everything for everybody. Your ancestor enslaved my ancestors and your ancestors and all of our ancestors. Your ancestor is responsible for the death of the Son of God, nailing Him to the cross. Your ancestor murdered an entire race of people, even the human race. See, we can get into this self-righteous, race-baiting game. We see it in our culture. Whether it's exalting our own racial heritage, of course there's really one human race, but we exalt our heritage at the expense of others, or we exalt victimhood at the expense 
of others that, that we assume were participants in that sinful oppression. The fact of the matter is we all need to be leveled to the ground and humbled because we all descend from an ancestor who was cursed, who ruined it all, who enslaved everybody's ancestors, who is responsible in a way for the death of Christ. You see, these are accusations that are leveled, if you can read between the lines, against one ethnic group or another. This one's cursed. It's even in the Bible, they say. Oh, we're all cursed. This ethnic group is responsible for the death of Christ. My friends, we descend from Adam, whose sin made it all necessary in the first place. This ethnic group uh, murdered an entire race. We descend from Adam, who put us all under death and put us all under slavery. So let's cultivate humility. Let's allow our unity in the shame and in the filth and in the folly of Adam's sin as our common ancestor, let's let that unite us in the Prince of Peace. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we ask that You would enable us to cease from man and cease from self and to flee to Christ. And in Christ, that we would not be as it were, male or female, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, Jew or Gentile, but that we would be humbled, for we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Are we better than they? May it never be. Lord God, we pray, humble us under your mighty hand and exalt us through faith in that one man, Jesus Christ. We ask in his name. Amen.